Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. We're starting a new book for inspiration this month. It's Wayne Mueller's book, A Life of Being, Having, and Doing Enough. And I have cleverly put this in right before we ramp up for the holiday season so that maybe some of us won't ramp up for the holiday season. (laughs) Let me explain by reading uh, how this book starts out. So this is Wayne Mueller. He says, we have forgotten what enough feels like. We live in a world seduced by its own unlimited potential. We're driven by a presumptive grandiosity that any economic, social, or political limitations can seemingly be overcome simply with more speed, more technology, or more resources. But for us, as human beings, we do have limitations. We are constantly reminded of our parameters. Rather than feeling large and omnipotent, our own very limited human days are likely to feel cramped, overgrown, choked by impossible responsibilities. At worst, we feel powerless. No matter how strong our hearts or how good or kind our intentions are, each day the finish line seems further away. The bar keeps rising. Nothing is ever truly finished. Nothing is ever good enough including ourselves. So we work, we add, we never stop, we never look back, we never feel complete, and we despair of ever finding comfort, relief, or sanctuary. Now I know this doesn't describe us all, and I'm glad to say it describes only a few of us now and then, but have you seen how nearly impossible the bar is right now in modern society? I'm staggered by the level of advertising, the the level of, uh, if you will, almost one-upmanship that exists in society today. Have you noticed that the advertising media has completely unreal expectations of what we should do, how we should look, what the standards of being a good American are, how hard we should work, and so on? Really, I think this probably started with that idea of the American dream back in the, in the 30s and 40s, that if you work hard, you're going to get somewhere, that really you can make a difference if you put your nose to the grindstone and really work hard. The trouble with this, of course, then the media portrays that, that beautiful picture of what we could have, right? The riches, the good life, the fame and fortune, the, the two houses, the you know, kids all going to Princeton. You know, the media is quick to show us what we could have. And so then, built upon the American dream of just needing to work hard to achieve it, oh my gosh, are we putting in lots of hours towards this idea of the dream. But whose dream is it? Is it really your dream? Or is it some kind of made up sort of Hollywoodish dream? Is it really what you want? Or does it just seem like 
probably what we would want. Or, or maybe probably if we had that, maybe we would be happier in the sense that seems to be reinforced by what we read in the newspapers, uh, by our friends and by other people that, well, I should at least strive for that. I should strive for that uh, amazing career. I should strive for uh, uh, the level of wealth or, or fame or, or commitment or, or even on the, you know, on the side of wanting to do right in the world. You, you know, maybe I need to make my mark on society by becoming a, an elected official or a great philanthropist, but, but always that idea of higher and better, more prominent, more successful. Is that, however, your dream? Or is it someone else's dream? I want to share with you a, a little bit of a disturbing uh, study. So up until 2012, uh, when, you, when they surveyed, and this survey has been running now for just years and years, they would survey young people in the preteen and teenage years to ask them what they hoped to accomplish in life. For just years and years and years and years, it was to be rich. All changed in 2012, and our teenagers and preteens have not looked back. Guess what they hope to achieve now? Fame. Yes. Society and the, what are they, the reality TV things and, and all of that that have catapulted the idea of kind of more regular everyday people suddenly becoming famous because they won the great American race or the, you know, they participated in X factors, you know, the idea of rising from relative obscurity and maybe, you know, minor talent to, to what? A star to the idea of being a real celebrity. And in fact, they, the survey kind of tries to break it down a little bit. And in, the, in 2012, they broke it down into these areas. One, young people want the intensity that comes with fame. They want the bright lights. They want to be recognized on the street. They want the idea that strangers would come up to them and look up to them. They, they would want that idea of really the vividness that they perceive that comes with, uh, with fame and riches, right? Riding first class, you know, the gold Cadillac kind of thing. Um, they want that vividness or intensity. They also want the celebrity lifestyle. I want to be rich. I want to, I want to have, you know, whatever car I want to have. I want to be able to do things whenever I want to do them. I want to be able to walk into any store and buy what I want. They also, though, have from us, I think, the older generation, inherited the American dream. And so they also are willing to work hard every day to be famous. And now this is going to set up an interesting little dynamic that we're going to get to in a minute, right? Because if your goals are bigger and bigger and your perception is, I just have to work hard enough to achieve it, do you see how that can be a real number on someone, right? The, the absolute uh, recipe for burnout and stress as a young person perhaps finds out when they're in their 20s and 30s that that's not as achievable as the American dream idea would allow them to believe. They also perceive themselves as suitable, that they have, now with reality TV, right, that they have what it takes, that they don't have to be particularly or overly talented in order to be rich and famous. 
And then last but not least of their things, they, uh, if they seek fame, they believe that they'll be able to be altruistic, that, that when they look at someone like, um, I don't know, Angelina Jolie that s- spends some of her money on developing countries and things like that, they th- see that as the way to be philanthropic, that they have to be rich and famous. That's the main way then you can donate back to society. There was another study done uh, just this last year um, that, took the, um, that, that took those teenagers and asked them more specifically to rate how fame would help them in their lives. And they came up with three things. One was, and, no, and one, not only was it the first thing they mentioned, but dramatically more than anything else, and that was their desire to be seen and to be valued. Now, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? A little bit in our teenage years, often we're feeling a little bit oppressed by the family or not quite sure where we fit in, as though perhaps our own opinions and ideas don't count. So not surprised, then, that a teenager might desire to be seen and valued, but interesting, they would think that it's rich and famous will get you that. That the, the striving for stardom is what will actually bring that rather than getting good at relationships or, uh, or doing other things. The other thing they said was similar to the first study, the desire for an elite high status lifestyle, having the ability to travel in first class and do what they want, eat in the best restaurants and so on. And then the last one also, the philanthropic desire to use fame to help others. All right, that's probably enough on our poor teenagers. (laughs) But I would like to go back to that interesting dynamic working there that they still have inherited for us the idea that if they work hard enough, they can achieve what they want. And now the bar for what they want is higher than it was before. It's to actually be part of, what are we calling it in the news these days, the 1%? Isn't there that the 1% of, uh, of the world that has 99% of the material wealth and goods? So now, so now they're aiming to be in that 1%, that stratosphere of, of wealth and fame. That's the desire and that initial idea of, and I'll just work harder until I get it. Oh my gosh, this is a terrible recipe. So first of all, they're really striving for something that isn't even likely to actually bring them what they want, which is some form of happiness, right? I mean, we all know, um, I mean, uh, talking about fame and fortune, I don't know if you've stood in the Safeway line lately and looked at the magazines, but I don't think that being rich and famous necessarily brings happiness. You know, it's like the $200 million divorce here and who's cheating on poor Angelina Jolie there. And, you know, it's like all of these people that in theory young people are looking up to, they're no happier than we are. In fact, it It might be said that their fame and their money, what? It just magnifies their humanness, doesn't it? It just makes visible for the whole world the the same human troubles and foibles that we all have. So how do we work our way around this? Wayne Mueller says one of the places to really start is understanding what it is that we really want. I firmly believe that our spiritual nature is here to support us 
in our human nature, that, that really when we look up, if you will, where we find our own connection to God, it will support us in being able to do what we want and live the life that we want. Absolutely, that's what, that's what I'm about. But in order to do that, you really have to know what is right for you. It is unreasonable to think that we're all gonna be in that number 1%, and equally unreasonable to think that that's what will provide the happiness, that that's what will provide the closeness. So my first suggestion to us all is, when we think that we want a thing, when we're working hard to um, aspire to something or to achieve something, I would ask you to go to beyond that thing or that uh, um, milestone in your life and ask yourself, what is it that you hope it will provide? So if it's a fabulous new job that you're working just day and night to try to you know, learn the ropes of the new job and to make your mark and achieve things and to earn more money, I would ask you, all that work, what is it that you're hoping to achieve? Is it security? Is it something that really will be meaningful, meaningful to you? Or is it something maybe that's been planted by the media that you simply need to succeed or that you need more money or that the accolades will be somehow important to you or the status that will bring is important? And then I would ask, you, ask again, is that really important to me? Because what I have found in talking to most people, that the things that we find important in our lives often aren't things. They may be re represented by things, right? With more money, maybe I can provide security to my family, but it's my family that's important. It's the people I care about and love. The new job may bring me wealth or position or uh, you know something like that, but what does that represent to me? Is it just safety? Because I can probably feel safe by uh, taking a course in self-defense and you know, I don't need to try to buy it, right? There are all different kinds of ways at getting at what truly will make our heart feel safe and secure and well-loved and, and abundant and all that. But I would guess Money is not the trick, and fame is not the trick. Now, I never thought in my entire life I would do a sermon that had anything in it like the seven deadly sins. So here we go. <laughs> Wayne Mueller says, interestingly enough, that those activities or those ways of being that in ancient times were labeled by the Catholic Church as the seven deadly sins, he says if you look at them carefully, they are really expeditious measures for someone who is busy to try to get what they want. So let me use a few examples. The book, by the way, in this section is fascinating if, you, if, if you're at all interested. Uh, you know, the book is lovely. So for instance, he talks about, well, the bottom line is that we all want love, but how many of us are actually willing to work towards unconditional love in our lives? Lust is a lot easier. <laughs> right? This Saturday night pickup, you know what I'm talking about, right? And doesn't it have, doesn't it have, on some level, the promise or the suggestion at least of intimacy that we all desire? Do you see the trap here, right? 
love, to really have a relationship based on love, my experience is a fair amount of work and effort and stick-to-itiveness involved. When we're on that racetrack to achieve, to ever do more, we start making shortcuts. Another one that they brought up is the idea of envy, and I I think this is targeted right to those young people who are looking at fame and fortune. They envy the rock stars. They look at the lifestyle that that someone has in those music videos, and they want to be seen that way. They want to be seen as important and powerful and heard with with a message, even if it's a crazy message. And the shortcut... Right? Because, I, I mean, as much as I would love it, I'm not going to be Katy Perry. I just, you know, I, <laughs> even with the right costumes, <laughs> I'm not going to make it. And so, because of that, what, what can I do? I can envy and feel justified in my envy. One of the other seven deadly sins is anger. And if you think about it, well, why would anyone want to be angry when instead we could come up with a peaceful solution? Well, first of all, peace takes time, right? True peace requires everyone participating in a way so that opinions are heard and solutions that may not be either person's initial solution may have to be proposed. There will be compromises. They'll be looking at bottom lines. A a peace negotiation between people, let alone between countries, can take months and years. But how much easier to have self-righteous anger right? Anger that's really backed up by by facts of how wrongly you've been treated, right? And you will actually get a lot of street credit for having it, right? He really has been, had wrong done to him. How terrible that these things happened or he was treated this way. I support him in that anger, right? That's the same level of support, maybe more than if you had negotiated the lasting peace. Do you see how we're shortchanging our true ability to make progress in the world for something that just is a little easier, a little quicker, a little more straightforward, and something, in most cases, that's even upheld by who? The media again. I mean, think about it. How many pills are we currently promoting to help someone love unconditionally? That's not what the pills do. It's a cheat. It's a cheat for people who want intimacy but are not necessarily willing to find intimacy through true I mean, it can be a part of it, of course, but when people are seeking out shortcuts, when they really desire something else, you know, we don't believe particularly in sin here, but what we do believe in is cause and effect. We do believe that as we sow, so do we reap. And so when we objectify other people, um, when we take our lives and, and settle for these shadows of what we really want, when, when we begin envying other people instead of being at peace with our own lives and making a difference in our own lives, when we do those things, we cheapen our own lives. 
we basically then begin to reap in our own lives being treated as we would treat other people as we would treat the world. All right, on to solutions. Are we ready for some solutions? I hope so. All right, well, I think a place to start would be today's joke. So needing to shed a few pounds, Robert and his wife Jennifer went on a diet that had specific recipes for each meal of each day. They followed the instructions extremely closely. They were making and eating their meals without variation or snacking in between. If they had to be away from home, they would make their meals ahead, prepackage them, and take them along. They decided for once in their lives they were going to do everything according to plan so that they would be successful. Well, after a few days, Robert and Jennifer, they felt terrific. They thought the diet was certainly working. They had never felt better in their lives or had more energy. And you know what? They didn't even really feel hungry. The plan always seemed to allow them to feel just full enough. Well, after a few weeks, Robert and Jennifer got on the scales. And much to their surprise, they discovered, in fact, they were putting on weight, not losing it. So they went back to the diet and recipe plans to see what had gone wrong. The very beginning of the diet book, small print, bottom of the first page, two little words. Serve six. (laughs) Oops. So first of all, I think that's our first solution. It's portion size, and and I don't mean just for dieting. I don't mean really in terms of of our eating plans, although that would be a good idea. But what is an adequate, even a fulsome portion for your life? How do you know when your life is full? Now, we have an interesting solution to this in our homes. Everyone, I'm sure, is familiar with the idea of a thermostat, right? A thermostat is just that little thing that goes into your heating and air conditioning system that you set it maybe once in the winter or once in the summer and you just kind of forget it. And automatically when the temperature gets to be comfortable, um, then the, the furnace cuts out and waits until it cools down and then it'll warm it up again and so on. I think we have done something with our own internal thermostat. I think it's a combination of two things. First, when we were 20, maybe even a little earlier than that, we discovered that we could push the limits of our own bodies and our own endurance. Right? Didn't we? Am I the only one? (laughs) Right? Don't you remember those all-nighters when you stayed out all night long, carousing and having fun, and then got home at 3 a.m. and started cramming for the final? You don't remember that? Oh, well, and there could be reasons you don't remember it. There may have been alcohol involved too, right? Okay, I'm catching on. All right. So first of all, one of our problems is we discovered, well, it doesn't hurt if I cheat a little bit. It doesn't hurt if I put a little bit of extra stress on my body, on my life. Things will go okay. Do you see the problem here, though? What have we adjusted? We've adjusted our thermostat. What we thought we could do yesterday, now we have said we can do that plus this. No harm and no foul. 
Meanwhile, what's coming at us? All of the, the world of possibilities, all of the things we'd like to do, all of the vacations we'd like to take, all of the fun things we could do with friends and, and neighbors, right? And so what we've done there is we've raised another thermostat, the thermostat of our desire. So we've got two thermostats going, I think, in the average human being. One that is our capacity level, what is enough, what is sufficient, what beyond that would tear us down. And then we also have a thermostat of what I could achieve, what I could be, what my dreams are. And do you see how they work together? Oh my gosh, I can treat my I can cheat myself. I can lose a little bit of sleep. I can I can take on that second part-time job, right? I can ramp up the doingness which puts me at a new pot plateau for my wanting stuffingness. <laughs> right? And then that can also ramp up and before long you are that miserable person that he talked about in that initial chapter where there's just never enough. You're never feeling satisfied. So the first thing we need to do is readjust our thermostat. What is it that you really can do in your life? Not as what is it you're expected to, not what society says you should do, not even perhaps what your parents and friends think is appropriate, right? Because there has to be an answer of what is important and necessary and enough just for you. And it may be very different from other people. It may certainly be different from the unrealistic ideas that Madison Avenue and the world has for us. What is it to be a human in the world right now? Don't we all have to look a certain way, pretty much? Yes, don't we? Back to the idea of diets again, right? If a guy doesn't have abs right now, he's lazy. If a woman doesn't wear a certain amount of makeup and looks like she's a Cosmo kind of gal, right? There's something wrong. Don't we get those messages every day? Now, I know most of us in this room are smart enough just to say that's BS, right? That is Madison Avenue trying to sell us cosmetics. That's Madison Avenue pushing deodorants and weight loss pills and all that crap. But what happens when we see it every single day of our lives? Don't we begin thinking there's something just a little bit wrong with me because I don't match that pattern? Because I don't, do you see where we are with this? We start thinking there's something wrong with us because we don't fit in, because we don't look that way. And even if you're up front with yourself saying, wait a minute, I want my dream. My dream is just to be happy with my family. My dream is to feel accepted in my personal community. My dream is just to feel useful at work. I don't need to be a superstar. I don't need to be the best employee on the planet. I don't need to make a million dollars. You can say all of those things and mean them, and at the same time, the whole world is chipping away at you. The whole world is saying, well, that's nice, Larry. We'll just see how far that takes you. <laughs> right? They'll start planning images of poor Larry in his retirement, rounding up the, the shopping carts at Safeway because he, never say, he was never rich enough to really make do 
for his, these are the thoughts that enter into people's minds constantly as a huge disservice to us. So first of all, we have to change our thermostat. We have to begin recognizing what is right for us. And the second thing that we have to do is we have to start taking a rest, a Sabbath, a break. Even God only put in six days of effort. (laughs) Right? Right? So what is your plan for downtime? And, And I would suggest it needs to be just as important as your plan for your working life. What is your plan for spiritual rest? What is your plan for um, at least once a week taking a day to spend quietly with family and friends, to do a little bit of the inner work necessary to have you ready for a coming week and ready for a coming life? We are going to talk about this further this month. This month we're gonna learn what our own personal dream of a filled life experience is. We're gonna learn how to see most of our needs as desires as already being met. That's gonna be a big one. Believe it or not, 99% of your needs and wants are actually already met if you woke up to them. We're gonna talk about that. We're also gonna learn how to focus more on what is accomplished and what is still to be done. We tend to be people always with the list that's never checked off. The, the, the never the sense of completing anything, always the sense of what needs to be done. And finally, we're going to trade in some of our doingness on a bigger scale of helping our beingness. So I'm going to read a final quote from this book and a prayer. And in this final quote from the book is your homework for this week. You knew that I would assign you some. And here you go. How do we know when even a single moment of enough has happened? Here at the beginning of our journey together, it is useful for us to discover tools and trustworthy resources we may already have within ourselves. So let us begin an experiment. We can start by trying to calibrate our own inner thermostat with one simple question. When approaching a task, a responsibility, or some choice between this and that, take a moment before you begin and ask yourself this question. Am I truly able to say that I will really love doing this? Or is it more honest to say that I can handle this? I'm going to read that one more time. So when you're faced with a choice of doing something or not, of achieving something or not, ask yourself, am I truly able to say that I will really love this? Or is it more honest to say that I can simply handle this? You will know instantly which is true and how you answer this question, the information you receive may or may not cause you to stop, start or change anything But over time, you will gather a tremendous amount of clear, useful, trustworthy information about your heart's authentic desires, your preferences, and even your dreams. Let us pray. 
There is one power and one presence, one, one life, this one thing that I call God. And what I know about God is that it truly covers all, all wise, all loving, always present. This is my idea of God. And because of that, I know that I'm right in the middle of it, that there's no accepting me, that I'm not outside of God, but rather, rather God is in me, acting as me, with the capabilities of experiencing God's love, of God's joy, of God's happiness, irrespective of my worldly conditions. And as it is true for me, I know it is true for each person in this room. Each person here has perhaps that willingness to see into their own heart about what is really important. Is it truly money and fame? Or are those simply symbols of something that we really want and really need? And so I know that God is available for this wisdom. As we inwardly look, as we evaluate our lives, we begin to see what is really important. I also know for each person in this room that there is that sense of completeness, that we were all born perfect and complete, that each one of us has that absolute capacity for divine love, divine peace, divine joy. All of those God-centered words that we put in capital letters, each one of us, truly a center of that as we observe it, as we cultivate it, as we claim it. And so I'm simply grateful for this awareness. I'm simply grateful for this chance at looking at our lives with greater sufficiency. Simply grateful to be here in the presence and the power of God as it takes the form of the people in this room and, of course, beyond into the infinity of God itself. And so I release this prayer into the activity and action of the law itself. I let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so glad you're here. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.